Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour with me, Harriet Minter. This week, I talked to the founder of the Women's Equality Party, Kathleen Mayer, about grief, get inspired by the founder of Black Girls Hike, and learn why women are the fastest growing prison population. First up, Catherine Mayer. First of all, tell us about what happened to your husband, Andy, and the experience of grief in a pandemic and isolation. Yes, well, you you summarised it quite well because, you know, the, the actual facts of it are quite kind of bald. Um, mm. My stepfather died um, on the 22nd of December. And although he'd been ill for a long time, he died much faster than anticipated. But I focused on looking after my mother, who was living on her own for the first time at the time, 86. She's now 87. Um, And I didn't really, for a while, realize that my husband seemed to be getting ill. And then at some point, realized that he was quite seriously ill and we got him into hospital. But even then, they thought he was going to be fine. Um, And then he wasn't. And he died uh, very suddenly. And Andy was um, a member of a a well-known band called Gang of Four. And he had been touring in China before this happened. And... um, so people immediately started asking questions about COVID. Indeed, when we first were in hospital, that's what they asked. But the timing didn't appear to be right mm. for that. At that at that point, everybody thought COVID was something that um, was still only in, in China, in fact, yeah. not in Europe. Um, he died on the 1st of February. And we, my mother and I were then sort of struggling to take in this this kind of double loss, not just my mother and, and I, our family. Um, but of course, if you think about that timing, it means we went straight into lockdown. So we were plunged in new grief also then very quickly into this new world. And then during that phase, it suddenly became clear that the timelines on COVID were not as we thought. And I asked the hospital whether they thought Andy may in fact have died of COVID and, and they in they revealed that they were in fact investigating that. Um, and a lot of evidence points to that. So it was a very, I think this year has been incredibly surreal for a lot of people. Um, loss piled on loss. As you said, it's not just the loss of people, it's the loss of 
um, familiar things of businesses, livelihoods, expectations, hopes, everything. But we um, we were in this particularly strange, strange place where, um, and and my mother and I started to meet once a week because I was looking after her. I was I was caring for her under the lockdown rules and discussing what was going on, and and somehow out of all of this we kind of found not just a close relationship with each other but we found a way through and we kind of committed what we had found into into writing a book so it's i have to say none of it none of it is anything i'd have predicted um but um i don't it, think anything it, this year is anything anyone predicted is no. it yeah no and but but it was also um, a, a kind of there was this need. Uh, one of the reasons I started talking, I had been very private about it um, because Andy was, you know, to he was a public figure, and um, so there was a yeah. lot of interest in his death. Anyway, it meant that I was my instinct was to be more private about it. And although I mean I've been on your show lots of times yeah, talking about things, things I was. Well, I and I love being on the show. I mean, the last time I was on the show, I was talking about the joyous thing of having co-founded Prima Donna Festival, yeah. and I remember signing Amanda Prowse's T-shirt <laughs> while she was wearing it. You know, um, I've had lots of fun on your show, and but I it, I would never have come on and talked about Andy. I kept that side of my life completely quiet. I never posted any personal photos, and it really went against the grain to talk about. You know, we'd been together nearly 30 years yeah. and I had never talk, talked publicly about him. But there were two reasons why I found myself doing it. One was because if he did die of COVID, which seems likely, it meant that the public health response was based on incorrect information about when COVID arrived and how contagious it was and all of that. But the other thing was because there was so much loss this because we were all hearing statistics every week about how many people had died. And I felt that it was important to try and counter the effect of that because it becomes quite numbing. People become statistics. Deaths become sort of, they merge into each other. And I thought in talking about what his death meant to me and my family and my stepfather's death, I could kind of reassert the humanity of every single person who died. And, and the way in which it affects not just the, you know, not just the widows, but all these other people as well. I think that's such an incredible and important thing to do, because particularly this year, I feel like death has become a number. And mm -hmm. we just watch the numbers and we forget about the people behind them. And I feel like sometimes I then don't know almost what to say or how to be with someone who is going through that grief because this year has made us sort of almost slightly you know, removed from it. How can we, particularly as we're going into Christmas, which is a time about being together with people we love, how can we support those who have lost people this year? Well, that's, funnily enough, that's another reason why we decided mm. to write the book. I should say writing the book was slightly accidental because what happened was that because of what I just said about wanting to assert what had gone on, but also to talk about the, the COVID aspect, I began to blog and a publisher asked me to write a book. And I said, I really didn't want to do it, but 
I, I urged them to look at mothers, uh, mothers, at letters my mother had started writing to my dead stepfather to tell him oh. everything that had happened since he died. Oh. And the publisher, the publisher looked at these letters and said, these are incredible. I want to publish them, but you need to write the book around them. So that's how, that's how the book oh, came wow. about. So, it, so it, the book is, I've written the, the sort of narrative chapters, but, but it contains these just luminous letters that my mother has written to my stepfather. And um, one of the things she and I very quickly realized was how awkward people were around us. Yeah. Even pe- people who knew us well, people who loved us, who wanted to help, but they were frightened of saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And they were they didn't know how to support us. And so another thing we felt would be really useful was ex- exactly having that conversation you just asked about. So, I mean, we've done some sort of, I hope, some quite kind of funny things in the book. Like we listed some of the hilariously um, well-meaning but inept things people said to us. <laughs> can you um, give us an example? We, oh, I can give you lots of examples. But, um, <laughs> I mean, that, that some of them are just sort of silly. Like um, I found that whenever I was having phone calls with people just after Andy died, when we'd come to ending the call, instead of saying goodbye, they'd all accidentally say, get well soon. <laughs> um, and um, they, they um, but some people said some really terrible but funny things. Like um, there was one, one woman, really lovely woman. So, I mean, she knows I've said this about her, but because she was so horrified when she said it, she suddenly turned around and said, now do you regret not having children? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> um, but but I think that the, for me the one that really made me kind of howl with laughter but also mm. sort of with grief is my uh, my husband as I say was called Andy my stepfather John but also my best friend died a couple of years ago and her name was Sarah and somebody sent me a letter which said tell Andy to say hi to John and Sarah oh. <laughs> really, you really want to say that? <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, but but mm. so the the point about this is some of that stuff you kind of go, oh, really? You don't want to say that? But you you know what? It's so much better that people say the wrong thing than that they yeah. say nothing. Mm. The only bad bad thing that people do is they're awkward around people like me. They don't expect us to want to laugh and have mm. fun, which by the way, you kind of do quite soon. You want doesn't mean you're not grieving. It means you want to try and find you. You can't be at a pitch of grief all yeah. the time. So you need you need to find normality. But like saying, ringing people and kind of um, just talking to them, even if you get it wrong, is so much better than ghosting them. And one of the really funny things is that that's something people are tempted to do because yeah. they're so awkward. They will. Some a few people will just disappear out of your life, and then some of them actually are honest about it. They'll they'll kind of reappear a year later and say, mm, you know, I just didn't know what to say, so I decided not to talk to you for a year. <laughs> um, don't do that. Yeah. Just just reach out. What would you, what would you say this, or how would you say this experience has changed you? Because you know, you said you're very private. You've always been private about your private life, uh, but this was such a such a public thing, and you've handled it. I and mean, I've seen some of the posts that you've done publicly on social media, and you handle it with such grace. I think, but 
that whole experience, such a, a fast change in your life, how has it changed you? I don't know if I'll know the answer until yeah. we're through through the pandemic. I mean, that's one of the strange things for all of us, not just for people like me who've suffered such big and direct losses, but mm. all of us, all of us are being changed and we're living in changing circumstances. And one of the things that we're in is a kind of holding pattern where um, I think I always knew that I was resilient anyway um, because I'd already been through a lot of loss. Nothing, yeah. I mean, Andy was, Andy was and is the love of my life. So I'm not sort of in any way minimizing that, but I knew what grief is like. I knew that it's a shapeshifter. I knew that it springs surprises on you. Yeah. And so to that extent, I was prepared. And I also knew that um, when things when things are upsetting to me, um, I often tr- will try and find some way of turning it outwards and making things better. So, you know, uh, uh, that's sort of why I have ended up kind of founding the Women's Equality Party or Prima Donna <laughs> Festival or whatever is is because my response is, is a kind of practical one. It's, okay, this is wrong. Well, let's see if we can fix it. Now, I can't fix anything that's happened, but I also feel very strongly that, for me, one of the big of grief is about having... It gives you this incredible cl- clarity about what matters and what really doesn't matter at all. And what matters is that you use your time well and that you love people and that you tell people you love them, uh, that you do constructive stuff. So I think it, it just, for me, it um, I feel like it kind of made me more like who I am rather, you know, because it just focused me on what I feel needs to be done. And, I, and I, I've also just been ridiculously busy because um, uh, Andy, as I say, was a musician and he had all these, he, he, he literally, um, when he was in intensive care, he got me to bring his, laptop to him and he was working on these projects because he didn't know he was dying obviously and um so he 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 died with all these big projects unfinished so um I I have to be completely bonkers because in the last week I've not only launched a book but a double album (laughs) um and (laughs) um which is an, an amazing thing his band Gang of Four um was very influential and uh, uh, this is going to be a 20 track double album with um, famous, really famous musicians. We've announced the first single. Um, The first single is Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and Mm -hmm. Serge Tankian from System of a Down Uh, and it's all cover versions of songs that Andy and Gang 4 wrote uh, with um, and just in case that wasn't enough the cover artwork was specially designed by Damien Hirst Oh, my so, gosh. So, see, I've been working on all of that as well as writing a book, as well as um, <laughs> doing Women's Equality Party and Prima Donna. Prima, Prima Donna, by the way, just, I mean... Which is amazing. It, which is amazing, but I don't know if you know, we got a big Arts Council grant. Um, we just heard that. And we're moving to a big new venue. And, you know, so it's like... So it all the things, you know... Uh, I keep saying this is that it's. I'm incredibly sad to the bone. I will never stop being sad to the bone, but there's so much 
stuff that I can be doing that matters. And in, and in, in writing the book, I'm celebrating Andy and John and in finishing Andy's mm. projects, I'm not only celebrating Andy, but I'm really um, coming, making sure that music um, comes into the world that he cared a huge amount about. So, Oh, Catherine, I I've, think you're absolutely incredible, actually. Really incredible. And, and I, I know that you achieve more in a day than most of us achieve in about 10 years. So I'm not surprised. But I think achieving all of that is, and it, it's just an, an absolute testament to your spirit and appreciation for life and what you can do in the here and now. Um, are you proud of yourself? Are you proud of yourself for coming through this? I'm proud of my mother. I mean, if you think if you think what it's like for somebody my age losing my partner of thirty years trying yeah. to reimagine life in the middle of a pandemic, my mother is eight and she'd never lived on her own. She's lost my stepfather she was with for forty years, totally uh, forty three years in fact, utterly in love with him. She has managed somehow to reimagine life be a published author for the first time in her life. Um, you know, she's already working on the next book. Uh, yeah. And in, and she wrote, She has all these brilliant rules, like um, she won't let herself watch TV before 8 o'clock at night because <sighs> she was worried about turning into a couch potato. <sighs> and she, she runs up and down her staircase um, multiple times a day. <laughs> you know, so... I, I'm proud. I'm really proud of her. Um, yeah. But I, I think I'm, I'm kind of proud of. I'm proud of everyone who is, you know, people are under enormous pressure. Um, yeah. My mother and I actually recognise that we're lucky in many ways. You know, we've got nice places to live. Um, we have, you know, it's terrifying that we're going through all the sort of probate stuff in the middle of this. But we're not. We, we are so much. In better in better position than than other people in some ways. Yeah. So it's like every everybody's got their own stuff to be dealing with, and I think we see so many people dealing with with it. You use the word grace. I think so many people are learning things, finding out things. It may be a joke about like people making sourdough, but you know I'm impressed by people who make sourdough. <laughs> I don't know how to do that, and and people are. People are rediscovering what matters, I think. I think you're right. Catherine, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Um, Catherine's well, book, Good Grief, uh, Embracing Life, is out now. And you can tell from the interview that she is somebody who does truly embrace life. Um, it's completely life-affirming to talk to her. So I, I heartily recommend the book. One, two, three, four! That was Catherine Mayer talking about her husband's death and her experience of grief. She is truly incredible. Next up, I speak to Rian Fatinikin about hiking, racism in the country and breaking down barriers on the mountain. Tell us about the organisation you've started called Black Girls Hike. So, um, Black Girls Hike is a, basically, it was initially set up as a hiking group, mm -hmm. as a safe space for people to kind of, like, explore the outdoors. But now we do, like, outdoor activities and training weekends and other types of events. 
Um, so we've just turned into a non-profit organisation. And the, the whole idea is basically just to give people a space to explore the countryside if they are new and um, just to make them feel comfortable entering those kind of spaces. Did you grow up in the countryside? No, not really. So, so how did you place. get into hiking? So I basically just took it up at the beginning of last year. I was like <laughs> on a train um, and I was going through the Peak District. And I was just like watching people get on and off. And I just thought, you know what? I'd quite like to take up hiking. And just made this little video on my phone and said, I'm going to take up hiking this year. And I typed it BPH. And then I just set up an Instagram a few days later. And it kind of just spirals from there. <laughs> it's supposed to be like a little kind of meetup. And <laughs> um, how many people are part of it now? Hundreds. It's, oh, it's kind yeah. of hard to quantify because we have like thousands of people that follow us on social media. We've had like hundreds of people turn up to our walks and our events and stuff. And if you're a white hiker, you might be listening to this and saying, well, you know, it's easy. You put on a pair of boots, you find a hill to walk up, you go walk up it. What, what's the problem? For black women, how, tell us where the barriers are. I think it's just, it's quite difficult to say what the exact barriers are because it is like, it's quite complex, isn't it? And there's loads of different barriers. Yeah. But I would say a lot of it is like the lack of representation. If you don't see yourself represented in those areas, you might not think it's something that you are going to be able to do or something that you're comfortable doing. And it's also things like soft skills. So if you've never had like any experience of the outdoors, like you wouldn't even know where to start if you wanted to just go and take a hike. Yeah. And so it's things like that. It's also like proximity to nature, how far, how close do you live to the countryside. You might feel like you're going to, you know, experience a bit of hostility if that's what you're actually used to or if you yeah. kind of have that perception that that's what the environment, you know, that's what the countryside is like. And so, do yeah, there's think, all the different reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting one, right, which is it certainly feels that as a nation... We have become a bit polarised in the last few years, uh, mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Um, and I can imagine that, and I'm totally putting words in your mouth here to tell me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine as a black woman growing up in an urban environment, you might have the impression that the British countryside is largely white and possibly quite racist. And as someone who grew up white in the British countryside, I would say that you know, it was largely white and sometimes pretty racist. So mm -hmm. what, do you think that is fair? Yeah, I do think that is fair mm -hmm. because if you think about it, if you're growing up in the cities and you experience a lot of racism and that's with people that are exposed to minorities all the time, then if you're going to go to places where, you know, they have less exposure, there's not many minorities there, yeah. and then, yeah, you are going to expect that those mm -hmm. kind of attitudes and those kind of misconceptions because people have like this idea about black people because it's very negative yeah. tend to be painted very negatively in the news so if that's all you've ever seen and then then as a person going there who is black you are aware of you know how you will be perceived by them yeah and what yeah. has your experience been like and my experience has been positive I would say most of my experiences have been really really positive um, I think when I'm when you are out in the countryside, it's basically because you're doing something that you're enjoying. When you see yeah. other people doing it, you know you're just as happy to see them. <laughs> people are really like welcoming. Everyone says hello and stuff usually. So, yeah, it's been good so far. I mean, I think there does seem to be a really lovely community of hikers. Can I yeah. ask what is the difference between what I would call going for a nice long walk and hiking? Mm. I would say it's kind of like hiking a bit more like with a bit more um 
a bit steeper, isn't it? So it's like hiking is <laughs> like walking with a scent, I always say. And <laughs> um, what is it that you love about it? Um, I don't know. I just kind of like the way it's allowed me to kind of like reconnect with nature, yeah. giving me like a real sense of adventure and I'm just like really curious about everything because everything's really new. Um, and it's really boosted my confidence. I've been able to meet loads of really cool people and just been some of the opportunities that it's presented to me from running the groove have just kind of like my life changed a little bit. Um, yeah, it's, it's just fun. If somebody wants to do it, is it literally just strap on a pair of boots, get on a train and find a hill to walk up or are there some basics that they need to be aware of first? I would say like definitely need to know, make sure you know where you're going yeah. Um, I got a lost once last year and it was pretty scary and I remember thinking oh no can you imagine if I had to like oh ring mountain rescue I don't think anyone would ever come back um, <laughs> so yeah so you need to know where you're going definitely um, and yeah just make sure you kind of like got the right kit like you don't have to get all the expensive stuff but just mm-hmm. make sure you've got some walking boots and like a waterproof because you don't want to have a really bad experience on your first time and it to put you off I think isn't there a saying there's no such thing as bad weather there's only bad clothing Yeah, that is one. Yeah, that is one. Um, As you are growing this group, what are your hopes for it and for other young women like you who haven't, you know, maybe haven't really ever thought or seen themselves as hikers before? Well, what we'd like to do at the moment is basically get a lot of people trained in different outdoor activities. So basically Mm -hmm. introduce them into things and then like support the development in that. Um, so we'd like to see that and we'd also like to like increase the representation of you know the instructors so it is a bit more appealing to people that are new to it yeah um i'm trying to think what else we're doing i feel like we're doing so much stuff we've got so many tabs open at the moment (laughs) when you say outdoor activities what sort of things are you covering in that oh so so far we've done some caving um i know yeah so we did some caving in the yorkshire dales we do that with this um, woman called steph dwyer she's really cool um and we've done some potholing as well which is like abseiling into caves and like climbing out and we've done some gorge walking um, and some climbing and then next year i'd like us to do some kind of maybe some like water sports like some paddle sports stuff I mean, I think you are absolutely amazing, and I just think being on a hike with you would be so delightful. I would like—I'd oh, walk up a—I'd walk up a mountain without even noticing it. I'd be like, <laughs> um, I really love talking to you, Ren. If people want to kind of come and walk with you, uh, mm-hmm. where can they find out more about what you do? So we've got a website now, which is bghuk.com, and we're also on Instagram, which is bgh underscore uk, and Twitter at ukbgh. Um, well, I think what you're doing is great and I'm wishing you many years of happy walking and maybe I will see you out there one day. Um, thank oh, you so thanks. much for coming to talk to us about it. Rianne Fatiginikin there uh, from Black Girls Hike. I mean, just, you know, when you talk to somebody and they just have such a can-do, open-to-everything kind of spirit and you feel instantly like I felt instantly like I was like, oh yeah, I haven't, I haven't been for a good hike in a while. I must find a mountain to walk up this weekend. That was Rianne Patinikin, founder of Black Girls Hike and my total hiking inspiration. Finally this week, did you know that women are the fastest growing members of the prison population? Olivia Pope of Penal Reform International explains why. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Quote, an alarming rise in the number of female prisoners around the world. 100,000 up in the past decade. Is that that many? I'm not sure. Here to talk to us about it is Olivia Rope, Executive Director at Penal Reform International. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Harriet. Um, So 100,000 across the globe. I... I don't think that's that big a number, but actually it is, right? Yeah, I mean, um, if you look at the percentage of um, the increase over the last 10 years, it's about a 17% increase. But also if you compare it to the increase of the general prison population or the male prison population, it's the fastest growing segment of people going to prison globally. So I think that's you know, really the point and why we are quite alarmed. Are there areas around the world where you can specifically highlight that this is a bigger issue? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, in Europe, actually, um, the numbers have gone down. um, But in places like Asia and Latin America, um, they are going up quite considerably. um, And we do know why. It's um, really an effect of the failed um, war on drugs that has been kind of fueling female um, imprisonment, often for minor petty offences or women who are caught um, in very vulnerable situations and kind of traffic drugs as drug mules and so on. Um, So, um, yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? So when you say kind of low-level petty offences and women who are being used as drug mules, some of you might hear that and say, well, if you're transporting drugs and you are caught you Mm. are sent to prison because that's the law give us a bit more of the context around it yeah sure um so the one side of it i guess drug users Mm. um and i mean i'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard you know sort of headlines recently of many countries moving towards um decriminalizing drug use and that really is a 
is a welcomed trend because what you see um, where drug use is criminalised is um, men and women actually um, caught um, and kind of get into this um, criminal justice system um, when actually they need more of a health-based response um, because once you get into um, prison, as we know from many of the women that um, we you know work for and represent, um, drugs are just even more available perhaps yeah. in prison, so it doesn't actually tackle the problem. Um, and when you're talking about the kind of um, yeah drug mules and women, there's yeah there's a very very fine line between um, a victim and an offender in these cases. Um, and there's some very compelling stories actually that show that while women um, did know that they were doing something illegal, they they were stuck in such a kind of context of poverty, violence, um, often coerced by um, their male abusive partners um, or family members. And I think one good example um, that we point to a lot is actually in England and Wales where they have changed the sentencing framework for these cases because they've recognised all of those factors, and so they take into account um, lots of lots of different factors now, not just the kind of criminal act of bringing in X amount of whatever drug it is into the country. Um, but there's a long way to go, and I think you know there's a lot of knowledge now that these drug policies aren't working, um, but they're also politicians are quite hesitant to change them because, you know, they like to show that they're tough on crime and tough on these issues, even if all the evidence points that prison is not the answer. I mean, in the report, you give an example of Gabby, uh, who's from the state of Mexico, Mm. Mexico, and this is sort of, I think, a kind of typical example of what's happening for young women here is that her father left the family stopped sending money money when she was 12 and so at the age of 12 Mm. there's already a vulnerable child who whose family doesn't have that support um she's Mm. a victim of sexual violence she which results in the birth of her first baby when she's just 15 and so that's already a level of trauma plus then now being a child looking after a child and so and she's in a in an area where you know, the major employer is the marijuana industry. Mm. And Mm. so she is eventually caught um, transporting marijuana and she's sentenced to 10 years in prison, which Mm. feels like a lot. And that's then, as you say, that's putting her environment where she's not going to be able to gain any kind of skills or useful employment. She's in an Mm. area that's surrounded by drugs. She's separated from her children and she's, mm-hmm. you know, in a mentally kind of very vulnerable state anyway. What, and, and that feels, is that, I'm right in saying, that's a kind of typical story of what young women around the globe are going through. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think her story is sadly really mm. typical, as you say, because our our research shows that a very large majority of women who end up in prison have experienced some kind of quite serious violence in their life. Yeah. And then this links to a very um, serious mental health crisis, which has only been kind of worsened by all the um, things that have come in with COVID. But that's another topic. Um, but yeah, I think and I think when we spoke to Gabby, one of the things that really um, struck me was kind of what she's now facing. She's only come out of prison um, 
recently mm. and she said the stigma that she's facing and the kind of rejection um, which we've seen the world over really with yeah. women, it's much harsher than men who come out and often have a support network. They might have a partner or a mother or yeah. somebody who will kind of watch out for them. Um, but with women, it's often because they've kind of broken those social norms as a mother. Um, the, the stigma that Gabby's facing, and she said with her criminal record now and so on, it's so difficult to get um, a job that isn't involved in the drug trade. And mm. so you can just see how the cycle kind of perpetuates itself. Um, it's just, I mean, aside from kind of the human rights aspect, which is obviously, you know, our main um, concern at Penal Reform yeah. International, it's just not effective. It's very expensive. And if you look at, at England, for example, mm-hmm. um, I think it was 60% of prosecutions last year for women were for breaching TV license. Oh, licensing. my gosh. Um, so you just, you just, I mean, and of course not all of those women will end up in prison, but some of them will because they become what the system would call a repeat offender if they have, say, a shoplifting conviction and then the TV license maybe three times. Mm. Um, and so you can just see that the consequences to not just a woman, but, um, all their children, because 80 to 90% of women have children, young children often. So you just, yeah, it doesn't make sense from any point of view, whether you're looking at the fiscal consequence or the kind of human, the human cost on those women and their families and their communities. So I think that's why we're so alarmed, really, that that the numbers are going up because it's just going against um, common sense. What can we as an international community do to try and change this? Yeah, good good question. Um, so in 2010, um, the Bangkok rules were agreed upon by all governments at the United Nations. And those rules um, actually committed to reducing the use of imprisonment. Um, and so obviously there's a long way to go. Um, we need to reverse this trend. And there are solutions and many of them revolve around um, looking at alternatives to imprisonment for where there does need to be accountability, um, where, you know, it does make sense, um, you know, because, as you say, it has, you know, a crime might cause harm to the society. Um, But we also need to look right back, um, and this is globally, at why a woman going to prison and is it actually necessary. Mm. You have, yeah, as I mentioned, kind of ridiculous um, offences like breaching TV licences, but you also have, um, in some areas like in Africa, you have witchery, filling prisons in some of the countries where we work. Um, and, yeah, a lot of minor petty offences. Um, the, the, I guess the kind of small majority where there are violent offences, um, yeah. a lot of research points to um, cases where women have fatally attacked their abusers Um, or have had some very serious mental health condition. And so those cases um, obviously need a kind of different approach, but certainly um, the victimisation that those women have suffered, our research has shown that it's not at all taken into account. Because, you know, Mm. yeah, defences like self-defence are typically designed with kind of, you know, a very hot, heated, you know, um, argument. Which um, isn't the case with lots of these. 
I think you know we've talked about this so often, which is not understanding the the background and the history that leads to violence in women. And actually, you know, I think in the UK, we've really only just started to properly understand it and take it into consideration. We've only just seen in the last couple of years, you know, the Mm -hmm. acceptance of mental abuse as a a defence for for women. So I really hope that actually this research can push things forward. And as an international community, we can come together and say, do you know what, we need to start realising that, as you say, it's expensive. It's not Mm -hmm. working. And having this as the fastest growing area for the prison population around the world just isn't good Mm. enough. Olivia, thank you so much for joining me. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.